Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Wyatt Smith, CEO and founder of Upsmith, a workforce productivity platform that's raised $3.3 in funding. Wyatt, thanks for joining me today. Grateful to be here, Brad. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely. Well, I'm the founder of Upsmith. Our mission is to combat the skilled worker shortage that companies across the U.S. around the world are facing. And I'm a founder with a background in tech and education but I grew up on a cattle ranch in Alabama. So very blue collar. <laughs> Most of my, my high school classmates are people that went into the military or blue collar work. And my dad still runs the family operated cattle ranch that I grew up on. And I go back to whenever I can. So very much uh, humble beginnings before a, a career that's taking me through some cool journeys to teach for America, to business school, out to McKinsey and, and some time at Uber in San Francisco before making the move to Texas and building up Smith a couple of years ago. What was it like growing up on a cattle ranch? I don't think I know anyone who's done that before. That's a first. I've, of course, watched Yellowstone, so I'm pretty well educated in that regard. But outside yeah. of that, what's it like? What's it like outside of what I may have seen on Yellowstone? So my dad is basically John Dutton with less murder as far as I know. He's a tough guy. Yeah, you know, you know my dad built the company from really humble beginnings, and his dad was in the military and had a small family farm, but mostly worked in manufacturing, built light bulbs for, for Westinghouse. And so when my dad was growing up, you know, he, he certainly was, was, was hustling and he played college football at Ole Miss, came home, wanted to build a, a venture. And it was tough to get people to back him because he didn't have a lot of assets. And so he hustled, he started building chicken houses and he would spread you know, manure at night as a way of kind of supplementing cash flow and use that to go and borrow more money and start buying land and expanding. So I didn't realize that he was teaching me about entrepreneurship when I was a kid bailing hay and feeding cattle and doing a lot of hot work in the summertime in Alabama. But that's, that's certainly what was happening. And I'm grateful for it. And then let's maybe skip a few steps. How do you go from the cattle ranch to McKinsey? Yeah, it's a long way from feeding cattle to building slide decks. My experience after college was abroad for a year on traveling fellowship. And then I came back to the U.S. and took a gig at, at, at Teach for America. That was a great way of, of having an impact, but I wanted to scale it up. And that's what I went to business school and I focused on technology. So when I, when I got to business school, it was really with an eye towards if I could drop a, a pen in downtown San Francisco and draw a circle around it, that would become the target zone for where to, where to push. And I had a, a friend and sort of peer mentor who had joined McKinsey out of, out of HBS a couple of years ahead of me. And he was a person that recruited me in. And I'm really grateful to Kanal Modi, if he's listening, for having given me a, a leg up. It was a really, really meaningful growth experience. And management consulting, you get put into a lot of different scenarios in a short amount of time. You learn a lot about business and people and how to, how to shape the outcome. And it was great training. I'm grateful for all the folks I worked with there and for the chance we had to make a big impact for the clients we serve. 
And then you also spent, looks like a little over four years at Uber. And it looks like that you joined at a pretty interesting time, right? 2017, was that right when Travis Kalanick was leaving and Dara was taking over? Yeah. My last interview was the day that Travis stepped aside, which was a, a wild day to walk in the building, as you might imagine. You know, in late 16, Uber had sold the China business to, to Didi and the then chief product officer named Jeff Holden had a vision for testing new business ideas and new market opportunities. And one of those was aerial ride sharing. And so a friend from college and from McKinsey who had been a part of the product team there gave me a call and said, would love for you to take a look and, and see if this is a, a swing you like to take with us. And that started a conversation that a few months later culminated in, in me joining the team. So it was a wild time, certainly. There were about three months before Dara joined where there was no CEO. It was kind of a management by committee. And during those those months though, we were we were building something special. It was this idea that you could push a button and get a flight in the same way that you could push a button and get a ride on the ground. And for those four years, we had a chance to build some great partnerships with aerospace vehicle makers and, and real estate developers and folks that shared that common vision. We started a business in New York called Ubercopter, which was an air taxi shuttle from downtown Manhattan to JFK airport and back. It could get you there in eight minutes at a push of a button. And we learned a ton. That was a, a really great experience. When the pandemic started, we hit pause because it was important from a, from a safety standpoint. And in a short amount of time, realized that it was going to be best for the Elevate business and for Uber and for everyone all, kind of all considered to find a partner to, to tie up forces with. And in late 2020, we announced a partnership with Joby Aviation, one of the companies that was building against that big vision in our, in our network. And we sold our team and the tech and, and that component of the network software to them. So I had a choice to make. Do I join the acquirer? Do I stay in Uber in a different job? And I picked option three, which was take the swing as an entrepreneur and, and build against a new mission. Well, let's dive right into that mission. I think that's a, a perfect segue. So let's start with the problem. How do you describe the problem that you solve? So Upsmith's focused on combating the skilled worker shortage that really limits employers from growing and stops people from achieving their purpose and meaningful work in the market. It's driven by two big forces. So on the supply side, there are more people that are leaving the skilled workforce than are joining. And that's true for lots of reasons, but at the highest level, there's, there's this replacement rate issue, particularly in skilled trades. I think people that build buildings, people that produce things in a manufacturing plant. And as a result, you have this gap on, on the labor supply side. At the same time, there is a big spike in spending that is happening for construction, for manufacturing, for critical infrastructure that's reshoring back to the United States in the, on the heels of COVID. And it's really true across sectors. It's true in advanced manufacturing. It's true in, in biotech. It's true in critical parts of what makes our economy hum. And so because there is this supply side replacement rate issue, because there's a spike in demand, we're short over a million people right now in open positions in, in manufacturing and construction alone. That number triples by 2030, and that creates a really big challenge for employers who need to be able to grow workforce productivity. And that's the problem that Upsmith seeks to solve. Now, take me back to 2021 when you first had this idea. How did you uncover this problem? And what was it about this problem to make you say, yep, that's it. I'm going to build a company around this. At the beginning of 2021, I knew this was the problem I wanted to work towards solving. And... Dara and Nelson Chai, our, our CFO at Uber, 
were generous in giving me an opportunity to extend at Uber through the end of the first quarter as we were transitioning the team and the tech after that sale. And so I used that time to you know, work on the transition and then also think about what would come next and interview lots of customers to better define the problem. I started with a focus on this mission in part because of being a farm kid from Alabama, having been a Teach for America Corps member, it just was, it personally mattered to me a ton. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people when I was teaching that I coached towards college who sadly were worse off, not better off for that decision. Not because they were bad. Unfortunately, the, the quality of the product that they got from a higher ed standpoint was not all that that aligned with what employers wanted and, you know, worse off, some of them didn't even finish. And so you're carrying debt. You don't really have a marketable skill. You're floundering. And so that's where we actually started with the idea. I went to a bunch of former students and I said, you right now are hustling in roles that are not leading anywhere fast. Could I help you take what you're excellent in and better substantiate that through, through technology and get a better job? And so we actually went to a bunch of former students who were hustling in the gig economy and we pulled down sort of their gig history as a DoorDash delivery person or someone working for Instacart or Uber. And then we would represent those strengths, like a 99% on time rate as a way of signaling someone's dependability and pitch that to hiring managers. What I quickly learned though, was it wasn't solving the hiring manager's problem. So the hiring manager looked at that and said, I'm kind of doing you a favor by taking a look at this person. I don't know that they're going to be a good fit for this, this open position that I have. And after, you know, a handful of weeks of, of hustling, we had some really cool people we, we served. We made some revenue. That was, that was great. But it wasn't a, a scalable idea because it wasn't starting with the most important pain felt by the payer. So I hit pause and disbanded the, the team of folks working on the idea. My wife and I had our first kid about six weeks later. And so, you know, that was a really joyous time to kind of focus on family, but came out of, you know, his birth thinking it's middle of the summer in 2021. I'm going to run as hard as I can against this problem through the end of the year. And we'll, we'll see if we can figure out what's going to be a, the right market opportunity to build against. And I started interviewing a lot of leaders in the construction and manufacturing sector, folks that wanted to grow, but just couldn't find the skilled workforce to do it. And you start to, you know, piece together common ways people are trying to solve the problem and developing a point of view on what might be a a more innovative way to do it. The big insight was if you could empower the employer to really quickly generate productivity from the the new worker, then that employer would have a business case for investing in that person's upskilling. And you solve a ton of problems for the learner if you start with the job as the first thing, as opposed to starting with training as the first thing. And that might sound like a, a distinction without a difference, but it's really important because when you start with the job, well, all of a sudden, all the questions around what's the skill that I need, how will I pay for it? How long does it take? Those go away because the person can run towards a chance to learn and earn at the same time. And it was with that insight that we began building against the, the first product at Upsmith, which is a product to source, screen, train, and deploy a new technician in less than 90 days. So the, the big turning point that came was in the fall of 2021. I was invited up to talk to some employers in Tennessee, which has a lot of growth happening and a lot of workforce development needs. Between the time I was invited up there and I arrived, Ford Motor Company announced a a really big investment in electric vehicle production. They're going to build the F-150 Lightning uh, truck outside of Memphis. And the governor's team, really excited about this, doesn't have enough skilled workforce to be able to take on those roles. And so 
we got an invitation to go to Memphis and, and be the partner to, to help them on that mission. And that's what kicked it off. On your website, I was reading some of the stats there, and I think one of them had something about how one in six youth are considering a skilled trade position in their future careers. So how do you address that? Because that sounds like that's a big top of funnel problem, right? Where you know, this is just not of interest to young people who are going to be joining the workforce. So what happens then? How do you get more of them to be engaged and want to pursue careers like this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Certainly there is this societal stigma that exists in pockets around, you know, is this meaningful, important work to do? And I think as a country, we've, we've shot ourselves in the foot a good bit on this, right? We've said for a lot of years, the ticket to uh, the American dream was, was college attainment. And that's not necessarily needing to be true because really what matters is skill development. What matters is demonstrating you have the competencies to do meaningful work and, and do so in a way that's super productive. And that's what employers want too. So we think about casting this in a way that's full of purpose, that's full of meaning, that's full of lucrative pay. We use a lot of language around the builder economy, which is super purposeful because these are roles that really matter for building things. And that's, that's a way to help shape somebody's future in a, in a positive direction. The segments that this resonates most with for us, people that are transitioning out of the military, looking for roles. We serve a lot of ex-service members. There's a lot of folks who are immigrants to the U.S. that are hustling and looking for a chance to grab a you know, rung on the ladder. They're here legally and they're, they're really great to count on and we serve them well. There's a bunch of folks that get out of high school and they're looking for an accelerated way to make money and you know, earn credentials and licenses that are going to be beneficial. And there's a lot of people, you know, I'd say more than 15 million Americans that operate in the gig economy in roles where they're working hard, but not necessarily getting ahead. And we would consider, you know, those folks, maybe they're stuck. They're smart. They know that there's a better set of opportunities that are out there, but it's really tough to transition. There's lots of friction there. And so by offering someone $20 an hour or more of pay, $10,000 of market value and training, the whole thing happens in, you know, 12 weeks or less. That's a pretty cool value prop. There's a lot of folks that raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm really interested in that. And, and we've been able to serve people in a, in, a, in a great way that has helped us show that really this is not a supply side problem if you, if you cast the opportunity the right way. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What's the business model? Is this like a marketplace or what's the model? Yep. So we have a, a model that's focused on monetizing the placement for an employer and really tying it back to solving a revenue problem for that employer. So we, we are a flat fee for having source screened, upskilled and deployed a net new worker via our technology platform. And we price that at $9,000 fully loaded for the service, or we'll lower the upfront cost and we'll take a stake in the productivity that that person generates over time. And that looks like $3,000 upfront, you know, up to 5% of revenue over a 36 month period. And that's been really aligned with how to grow value for the customer we serve because we win when they win. We also are building software as a service products that are tied to how to maximize the productivity of those folks in deployment. So think about ways to help anybody that's in your technician field force 
generate more, have greater throughput, reduce the defect or rework rate associated with their job. And we do that in a way that's in a classic SaaS license that helps to ensure that person thrives attack. Who's an ideal customer for you? What is that ICP today? If we're looking on the employer side. Yeah, totally, totally. Our ICP tends to be an aggregator of service companies. So think home services, the folks you call to fix your plumbing or electrical or, or air conditioning. It's commercial services, companies that have enterprise service agreements with big box retailers or convenience stores, and they're dispatching service techs to those locations. We serve a number of companies that are working in, you know, aggregating service companies that are doing work in manufacturing or construction or industrial services. So it's really anyone that is, is trying to find ways to deploy net new skilled workforce to grow revenue. The thing that's been really aligned with the, the aggregators on the private market side is they want to grow. It's a big part of the, the thesis behind how they raised capital and, and started deploying it. And so there's a bit of a time pressure there where our needs are aligned with theirs. And then they tend to be a little bit more pro forma focused than small businesses can afford to be because they have the bigger balance sheets. And so they're thinking about how do I invest in growth? We started serving a bunch of small businesses in Tennessee, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have served them and to continue to serve them. It's tougher though. You know, if you're a family owned business, you may not have a ton of growth needs. You may have a ton of working capital constraints that are limiting your growth. You probably don't have a very developed, you know, human resources department or, or the wraparound services for that. And so we have found that those folks definitely face a lot of challenges that we've been able to speed up our sales process as we've, as we've gone up marketed it. From a marketing perspective, how do you reach these folks? It sounds like it's spread out across many, many different industries and verticals. So it sounds like there's probably not like one big conference that everyone attends or one big media outlet that everyone consumes content from. So how do you reach these people and find these people? When I think about reaching customers, it largely maps to that same strategy of find the aggregators, because if you can serve them well, then you can get distribution through that network. So a good example of that, one of our first big customers was a, a platform owned by a private equity firm that is really active in the home services market. And I got to know their CHRO. We spent a good bit of time together. They had a big need in Texas. We helped them launch in Dallas and in Houston, an accelerator for getting more skilled technicians qualified. And once you prove that works, you then can expand with them in other markets. So we, we finished 2022 active in Tennessee and Texas. And since then have grown to 15 states across the country, in part through that strategy of serving the aggregators well, and then using that as a way to be able to expand. Is there a compliance and regulatory headache as you expand from state to state? There certainly can be a, a regulatory you know, complexity to expansion in skilled trades. We found success in, in categories like the HVAC service market, in part because there is a national standard that you can certify people to that works from state to state. That is not always true. Look, in electrical or in plumbing, as an example, there are often different statutory requirements in different states around licensure. Less true in HVAC maintenance, hence why certifying against OSHA 10 was one of our certification standards. EPA 608 is another. That gives you a credibility and deployability in almost any market across the country. And so approaches like that enable you to, to scale faster. What's the competitive landscape look like today? Are they using like traditional staffing firms? Are they going to Indeed? What are the employers doing right now to try to solve this? 
Yeah, no, really important question. So today, if you're trying to solve this problem, you're probably doing one of three things. One, you're hiring a staffing agency and you're outsourcing some of the responsibility to them, which can get people into business quickly, but often there are a lot of concerns on quality. And if you really want to grow your own team and, and grow with that team, frequently you want that to be a full-time employee. You also will hire recruiters and you'll build a recruiting team of your own. But those recruiters find that they're kind of passing around the same stock of talent given the replacement rate issue we talked about earlier. And so if you're not growing the underlying pool of people, then the price goes up and you start paying then pretty high rates of, of signing bonuses or other efforts to sort of poach talent from your competitors in your market, which is the third way that often people are trying to, to solve the problem. It's by and going out and in, in sometimes in sort of a mercenary way, pulling people in that you're paying high for and you, know, you can lose them just as easily because they're going to potentially look for the next competitor of yours to go work for. And so we look at that problem and say, gosh, the way to solve it is to grow the underlying supply of, of talent and to do it in a way that also builds a lot of loyalty and built-in retention with the companies that are investing in those people. And that's how we developed that first product for, for upskilling net new workers. What other products do you have on the market now? Are there multiple products or do you have plans to have multiple products? Yeah, certainly. So what we hear from customers all the time is, can you help me make my existing workforce more productive? It's great to get new people in. I'm really thinking though about how to expand revenue on the folks we already have. And what's great about that is you know, software can really make an impact. You can build against that productivity problem and help people expand the amount of, of revenue they generate, the amount of throughput they generate, reduce the amount of, of rework that is associated with their deployment. And then you also dig into sources of motivation, like why people perform at a higher rate. Some people it's intrinsic, the you know, desire to do a good job, to be acknowledged for doing that great job, to be tied to a mission that's important. So for some people it's extrinsic, it's more pay, more rewards, status, promotion. And what's really interesting is because we're now deploying this across a bunch of different markets and different use cases, we get a bunch of feedback from employers and from the technicians we serve on how to make their experience even better. And that's a set of tools and, and services and products that we're excited to announce this fall, which we'll be doing in the next few weeks. Can you share any numbers that just highlight the growth and adoption that you're seeing today? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think the pickup rate, whenever you're in the early stages of building and we're a early stage venture, you know, certainly continuing to iterate towards product market fit, you're looking for one is the willingness to pay there because are you, are you solving the right problem? Is it evidenced by revealed willingness to pay? And that really substantiates that you're onto something. We started from the very beginning in our first accelerator in Memphis with a paid experiment there. And we're able to generate revenue from the very beginning, which was I think, important for growth. The second piece was, you know, what does customer love look like? And for us, that's really like the rebuy rate at which the employer wants more of the product. And it's also net promoter score and like how people talk about it. So because our candidates were experiencing this sort of life-changing impact of a better job, more pay, paid training, we were seeing net promoter scores you know, north of 90 in those first cohorts, which really exceeded expectations and led us to say, hey, this is really solving a problem for these folks. Let's, let's dig in deeper. We think hard about you know, unit economics. Like how do you do this in a way that shows it can scale really well. And, and it's important to us to show software margins. And my experience has been, you can definitely do that 
even in a business that has lots of, of input with people, if you price for value and the value you can generate for your customer. And so we've been able to generate you know, 60 to 80% gross margins in these motions in part because we're doing work in an area that's, that's got a lot of productivity tied to it. And so if you can unlock 10 times that amount of value for your customer, then you can earn your right to, to participate there. And, and that's been great. But yeah, so we're, we're active in 15 states. We, you know, we, we've done activations in, in, in lots of different markets and at this point have a pretty strong view on how to solve the problem. It's now a question of like, how do you extend that in a way that's going to be super scalable and repeatable and can allow you to make a bigger impact against what is a huge mission and a big problem in the, in the economy. And I know you're somewhat early into the fundraising journey, but what have you learned so far about fundraising and from raising this 3 million plus round? What have you learned so far? Yeah, uh, fundraising is about relationships. You know, certainly when you're building for the long term, people want to understand the vision. They want to understand, you know, the market opportunity, but really they're investing in you in these early stages. And so it's important to be somebody that is, you know, high integrity and, and hardworking and all those things as table stakes, but then also be somebody that can, can lead well, can, can pull people around the vision and, um, you know, show humility and, and the things you don't know yet and that you're trying to figure out too, and then work super hard to get there. I think our early investors were individuals who I had worked with in previous jobs, either for my time in consulting or my time in the tech sector. And they were great mentors for thinking through business building and, and iterating on the idea and, you know, once a lot of those folks said, hey, I'd, I'd love to support you whenever you decide to raise capital. And we were able to pull together, I think it was a quarter of a million dollars or so we raised kind of right after Thanksgiving. I'd been back in Alabama and drove <laughs> from Alabama to Texas and just had phone calls that whole trip over 12 hours talking to people about the plan and then opened up an angelist RUV that next week. And, and it filled up pretty quickly. Now this was during winter 2021, you know, early 2022. So it was a white hot early stage market. But once, once word got around that, you know, we were taking a big swing that led institutional interest pretty quickly. And I had a, a great friend from business school who had recently started an early stage venture fund. His name is Rob Biederman. He's the managing partner at Asymmetric Capital Partners. He took an early bet on us and was our first institutional check-in in December of 21. And then we were able to pull in a lot of other great partners around that. GSV, the folks at Andreessen Horowitz, the team at um, Excel Scout Fund all joined on board. And that gave us a big, a big slug of capital to build and test against, so, you know, starting early 2022. And we've been able to make some good progress since then. Now, based on everything that you've learned so far building, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself if you were starting the company again today from scratch? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, that's such a good question. If I go back in time, I would say it will sound a little trite. So forgive me for that, but it's just the importance of focus. Because as an early stage founder, there's all sorts of directions that you can take things. And because you tend to be optimistic by nature, <laughs> you want to assume the best about how multiple pathways can play out. But if you dilute your focus, it becomes really difficult to make progress as fast as you need to, to be able to build momentum. And so I think that's really the advice that I would give myself, you know, two years ago and I give myself today and I'll probably be giving myself six or 12 or 18 months from now, because, you know, when you're, when you're in this early stage building mode, you want to turn more cards over because you don't know exactly know which dominoes are going to tip and you want to keep pushing because 
you're convinced as soon as they start tipping, it's going to really help to to move things along quickly. But you know, early stage venture is a momentum game, and and momentum comes when you can really focus your energy around a, a set of problems that are going to get more information, and from those that information you can build. Final question for you now. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Yeah, Upsmith is on a mission to be able to solve the skilled worker challenge and to help create pathways for people to pursue meaningful work and for employers to grow and really expand productivity. So we want to build a, a, a meaningful, consequential business that's impacting people all over the world. And that means starting narrow and solving a problem really well for a small group of customers and then building from there. So, you know, I think, I think we have a lot of work to do still. I'd love to, to be active, not just in the US, but in other markets by that point. I'd love to be active, not only in our, our niche markets that we've started in, but in solving big problems in healthcare and solving big problems in logistics and other parts of the skilled workforce that are certainly desperately needed. But I think you earn the right to do that by performing in a really great way for your customers at the start. And so yeah, we're really focused on helping skilled trades companies excel and, and really grow and create good careers for people at the same time. Amazing. I love the vision. We're up on time here, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if any founder is listening in and just wants to follow along with your journey and learn from you and everything that you're doing, where should they go? Yeah, I would love the chance to, to connect with other founders. So great to connect on LinkedIn. Great to connect on the website formerly known as Twitter. Um, <laughs> I would love the chance to have folks follow along on, on Instagram. But I'm, I'm probably most responsive on Twitter DMs. So look me up there and, and I'd love to connect. Wyatt underscore H underscore Smith. Amazing. Wyatt, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me aboard, Brett. Take care. All right. Cheers. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 